The death by crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth is one of the best attested events in first century world. I know you weren't there, but in terms of what happened in that decade or that, that century, first century AD, um, it's, it's one of the things we know really happened. It's not just the New Testament witnesses to it, the four Gospels, it's throughout Acts, it's mentioned in most of the epistles in the New Testament, but historians, non-Christian historians like Josephus and Tacitus also mention it. It really did happen. And it's pretty clear that the early Christians saw the death of Jesus as something of huge significance. They had regular meals to commemorate his death. And weirdly different to most meals or events that commemorate death, like Anzac Day or Princess Diana, which are pretty sombre, they were often quite exuberant, joyful celebrations of that event. And the death of Jesus dominates the back half of Mark's account of Jesus. If you've been reading Uncover Mark, uh, you've been going through various passages, and from chapter 8 through to chapter 16, the death overshadows everything that's going on. Jesus keeps saying to his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And a couple of chapters are taken with recounting his trial and crucifixion. But in chapter 10, verse 45, for the first time in Mark's gospel, Mark helps us understand the meaning of Jesus' death. He comes to give his life as a ransom for many. And not just the meaning, but the significance of it. Because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that's what we're going to explore today. The meaning and significance, implication, if you like, of Jesus' death. Firstly, there's the meaning of his death. In verses 32 to 34, Jesus again tells his disciples what's going to happen. They're on the way to Jerusalem. The disciples are following Uh, And Jesus is leading the way. He already already told them twice that he's going to be killed when he gets to Jerusalem. But instead of avoiding Jerusalem, which is what I would do, Jesus strides ahead, determined to bring it on. And we're told the disciples are astonished and and afraid. (laughs) They don't want to go there. They can't understand why Jesus is. But he is. And then he tells them for the third time what's going to happen. Verse 34, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law, that is the Jewish leaders. They'll condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. We get more detail in this prediction than we have in the previous ones. And the details actually help us. Jesus will die as a condemned criminal. It'll be a judicial decision, not accidental. He won't have a tree trunk fall on him or get COVID. He's going to die by execution as a criminal. Secondly, we're told he'll be handed over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, which is regular language in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, for being under the judgment of God. Whenever Israel goes wrong, when they turn away from God, what happens to them? God hands them over to the Gentiles under his judgment. And we're told they're going to mock him, spit him, flog him and kill him, which are things associated specifically with crucifixion. If you're executed by the sword, those things didn't happen under Rome. It's only pretend kings, people who think they can thumb their nose at Rome that got crucified, humiliated as pretenders. So we've got some pretty strong hints already as to what Jesus' death is going to mean. 
But then in verse 45, we get it spelt out. He's going to give his life as a ransom for many. His life will be taken. Yes, he'll be executed, crucified by a squad of Roman soldiers, but it'll be him giving his life, a voluntary death, as a ransom. Hey, you know what a ransom is, don't you? In the ancient world, a ransom, a ransom price, was regularly associated with slavery. If you were a slave, the only way you could get free normally is for somebody to come along, someone outside, and pay the freedom price, the ransom price, the manumission, so you could walk free. But we have the same sort of things today, don't we? So imagine we're taken hostage. A gang of terrorists storm social science lecture theatre, brandishing their AK-47s, and they say, all of you are our hostages then how do we get free? Well, somebody has to pay the ransom, don't they? Whatever that might be. They've got to meet their demands before we're liberated. Now, I don't know what they might be, but uh, I guess your parents might think that they should do it. It's worth asking, how much would your parents pay for you, do you think? <laughs> million dollars? Like $40 million, is that enough to get all of us free? It's hard to know, isn't it? What, what is your life worth? if you were taken hostage, if they were threatened to kill us unless their demands are met. But there is another way it might happen. If your parents can't stump up the money, maybe the Premier would say, listen, I'll take their place. Let's do a swap. If you let all of those students go free, I will become your hostage. Take me captive. Easier to control. It's only one person, not 40. I'll give myself as a ransom. But that's only going to work if the person who does it is worth more than all of us. <laughs> Otherwise, there's no deal. Someone like the Premier might be worth that. And that's what Jesus says he's going to do. He's going to give his life as a ransom for many. We're going to get shot, but he comes, takes our place, is willing to get shot in place of us. And so he describes it as for many, it literally in place of many. It includes the idea of a substitute. Now, we know what substitutes are if you play sport. And one of, you're getting a bit tired, get injured. You can sub in and out, can't you? You bring on somebody else in place of you. It, it's to take the place of. And as Jesus says he'll give his life as a ransom for many, he's saying that many would die unless he substituted himself and dies in their place. If the Premier is subs himself in for all of us and then the hostages kill him, then he dies while we go free. Would Mark McGowan do that? i got my doubts, but we'll come back to that. And the idea of a substitute, a ransom for many, has very strong Old Testament echoes. You may be familiar with the Day of Atonement that God set up for Israel where one day of the year, every year, Israel would gather around and the priests would kill a goat and send the goat out into the desert. They took the place of Israel. The priests would confess the sins of Israel over their head. They took the place of sinful Israel as a sacrifice. Or Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, that is with God, was placed on him. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is, we do evil. We deserve to be condemned, to be captives to death in death row. But Jesus trades places with us. He dies in our place, 
takes our condemnation so we can go free. And that idea is reinforced by Jesus talking about the cup and being baptised. You see that in verse 38. He says to James and John, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I'll be baptised with? Now, for us, drinking a cup, being baptised sound quite pleasant uh, things, don't they? Have have a cup of of coffee, have a glass of wine, be baptised. They're they're great, great celebrations normally. But again, in the Old Testament, the ideas of baptism and drinking the cup have particular associations. For example, Psalm 69. The psalmist, David, prays, don't let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. See, to be baptised is to be overwhelmed in the floodwaters that kill you. That's to be baptised. Now, I hope if you got baptised as a Christian, that didn't happen to you. But it's symbolic of that. You finish the old life, it gets drowned. And for Israelites who hated the sea, who swimming was the last thing they ever wanted to do, their nightmares were of being drowned. Well, my guess is most of us have had those nightmares, haven't we? Trying to imagine what it's like to be sucked in under the water and not able to come up, trying to hold your breath till you can't anymore, and then your lungs just get flooded with water and you die. That's to be baptised. And to drink the cup is not a pleasant thing. Isaiah 51, God says, uh, Isaiah says about Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. It's the picture of the last gl- glass of wine poured from the wineskin or wine bottle that's mainly sediment. It has a little bit of wine on top, but it's mainly just ugly, bitter sediment. And you're forced to drink it right down, including all the sediment, and it just sticks in your mouth. It makes you feel terrible. And you're drunk with it. And you've got the headache and the hangover. And it's a picture of being in pain, of being overwhelmed with bitterness because you're under the wrath, the judgment of God. And Jesus says, that's what my death will be. So before Jesus dies, he spells out to his disciples and marked us to us what his death means. It's not the waste of a life because he dies young. It's not the inspiring death of a martyr that's meant to inspire us all to live better lives, but the deliberate sacrifice of his life to liberate us. He died the death we deserve. He pays the penalty for our sin and evil, taking our place as our substitute. And it's the most wonderful thing that's ever happened, the most extraordinary thing that's ever happened. I asked earlier, do you think Mark McGowan would be willing to come and take our place if we were hostages, knowing he would get killed? I presume not. I wouldn't either if I was the Premier. All sorts of excuses I could give. I need to direct the the rescue operations. I'm needed out there. Instead of coming here, facing certain death. But that's what Jesus did. He gave his life for us. But this passage also shows us that if that's what Jesus did, it turns our lives upside down in many ways. The implications of it are stunning. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. 
The picture is really one of a household. I don't know whether you can imagine an ancient household, but ancient household was usually extended family and servants and slaves. And every evening the the master and his family would sit at the table for dinner or or lie around the table, depending on the, the particular culture, and the servants would serve them. They'd wash their hands for them. They'd bring the food and put it on the table. When you'd finished your meal, they'd take it away. And Jesus says, in this household, in this community, the master comes to serve. He waits at table. He swaps. He says to the servants, you sit at the table. I'll get, get your food for you. You, uh, you give me the orders. What would you like me to do? What would you like for dinner? Now, that would be not just an extraordinary thing to happen in the first century, incomprehensible, but actually wrong. If somebody did that in the first century, everyone would hate them because they're turning their, the normal order of society upside down. If the slaves all start to think, maybe we can sit at the table, everything goes to pieces. And Jesus is saying, yes, everything goes to pieces. If I came not to be served, but to serve, it changes everything. It's revolutionary. Now, James and John, it seems like they're trying to get the jump on the other disciples. <laughs> they come to Jesus and they sort of surreptitiously say, will you give us anything we ask for? And every parent knows when your child does that, you always say no. But Jesus doesn't. He said, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, we want to sit at your right and your left when you come in, in your glory. That is, they want the places of honour and power. They're right They recognise that Jesus one day will come in glory. He's the ruler of the universe and one day that will be clear to everybody. But they're so wrong because Jesus is not a ruler who loves lording it over his subjects, but he came to serve his subjects. He says in verse 42, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. So if you get to the top, then the natural thing, the normal thing, is to use your position, isn't it? Make sure others know that you've got that position, that you deserve their respect. So you put a big sign on your door, Chief Executive Officer. So everybody who knocks on your door knows who you are. They take advantage of being above others. I was born in East Africa and in East Africa... Um, we didn't know what restaurants were. Uh, we came back to Australia when I was seven. I remember the first time I ever went to a restaurant. And I had, it was really bizarre because somebody came up, dressed up in black and white, and said, Can I take your order? I thought, I can order this person around. This sounds great. And so I started to order them around, and whatever I, I, I asked them to do, they did. Filled my, my glass again, gave me a bottle of Coke. Anything I wanted, they did. I, I thought, <laughs> I want to take this even further. So I started to make a complete mess of the whole tablecloth, knowing that they had to clean it up. That's normal behaviour. Remember a, a recent grad of UWA, graduated in engineering, got a job uh, in an engineering company. And about a year after he started work, he was involved in a particular project and the project went bad, Um, like quite bad. And uh, uh, um, the boss, uh, his, his immediate boss, heaped all the blame on him. He got sacked. 
He was covering his own back. But Jesus didn't cover his own back. He put it out to be flogged. Jesus didn't protect himself. He went all the way to the cross. Jesus' kingdom is the reverse of our world. He takes our place. He dies for us. And so Jesus says, verse 43, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. That's a very different world, isn't it? Hey, this is the normal world. It's sort of a pyramid. Everything works like this, doesn't it? It's sort of hierarchy. And the aim is to move up and up and up, get more and more people under you, because then you can do what you want. You can boss them around. You can have the privilege and honour of being near the top. What's Jesus doing? He's turning it upside down. He's saying the Lord, the ruler of all, is the servant of all. He serves them. He doesn't ask them to serve him. Now, in Western cultures like ours, our governments actually have those labels. See, who's the, who's the boss in the government? He's the prime minister, which means what? The chief servant. Minister just means servant. And he has ministers, that is, servants who, uh, who help him to serve the country. And every department in the government has a secretary. They don't have a CEO, they have a secretary. Of course, the secretary is somebody who does the menial work of making the department work. We've got the right labels, but we just can't pull it off, can we? That's not how our society, our government works. Uh, I remember hearing about a a Christian businessman who started his own business, built his own company, and it was quite a large, successful company. But he kept driving a Hyundai. Every day he'd rock up to work and drive into the, the general manager's parking spot in his Hyundai. And the other executives in the company got quite shirty with him. Because they wanted to buy their BMWs and Mercedes, but while he was driving a Hyundai, it just sort of didn't seem right for them to do that. But they really wanted to. So you know what they did? They all band together and put in enough money to buy the general manager a Mercedes. Because if he drove one, they could have theirs too. See, that's how it works. That's how it works everywhere. And the disciples don't get it. It's not just James and John who don't get it, coming and asking for the positions of power. Notice in verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, the rest of the 12, they became indignant with James and John because they're indignant that James and John have got the jump on them. They're infected with exactly the same disease. They want those positions as well. And Jesus rounds on all 12. Don't you get it, he says. You finally got that I'm the Messiah. I'm going to rule the world, but I came to die for you, not lord it over you. I didn't come and ask you to buy me horses to ride. I didn't have any of that. I've come as nothing to die by crucifixion, the lowest death you can ever experience. And Jesus, by his actions, subvert our culture. They subvert us. Imagine you're at a restaurant. The waiter comes to take your order. And while you're engrossed in your menu, trying to work out what you'll have for dinner that night, you finally look up and look at the waiter and you recognise it's Mark McGowan. As the waiter, he's come to serve you. How'd you feel? It's sort of like a shock, isn't it? There's actually two different ways you could react to that. 
You could think, Mark McGowan serving me, I've made it. I'm going to boss him around. I'm going to tell you what to do. Yeah, this is my chance. Or, and this sounds more sensible, you'll think, he's serving me? That, that's wrong. That's sort of embarrassing. But maybe if he's going to serve me, I'll, I'll go out the kitchen and wash the dishes. And that's what Jesus' service is like. He's creating a whole different world. And the disciples don't get it. They're told, but they don't get it. But Bartimaeus, he gets it. Who's Bartimaeus? He's introduced to us as the blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus. He hasn't got his own name. He's just Timaeus's boy, the blind one. That's all he is. And he wants to come to Jesus. He's crying out, Jesus, son of David, had mercy on me. And what do people do? They say, shut up. You're not worth his attention. You're a nobody. Just like the disciples did to the children earlier in chapter 10. And what does he want? Does he want recognition? Does he want Jesus to say, ah, Bartimaeus, you're a great guy? No, he just wants mercy. That's all. Mercy. He's got nothing to offer. He just wants kindness from Jesus. He doesn't ask for places of honour and power. And Jesus stops and summons Bartimaeus. And he jumps up. He leaves his cloak behind, probably the only thing he owns. And he comes to Jesus. And Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Exactly the same question he asked the disciples, James and John. What do you want me to do for you? See, he really has come to serve even the least important person in the world. And Bartimaeus simply says, I want to see. That's all. I just want mercy. And Jesus gives it to him. And then what does he do? He eagerly follows Jesus in the way. The opposite to the rich man last week who who is unwilling to follow Jesus. Bartimaeus just leaves it all behind to follow Jesus. See, in, in Mark chapters 8 to 16, this second half, we see Jesus' mission come to the fore again and again and again. He is the Messiah. He's God's king. He's the God, the son even. But he's come to serve and give his life as a ransom. And it shows us what it means to follow Jesus. These chapters are about discipleship. Bartimaeus is the picture of the real, the true disciple. And both come into clear focus in verse 45. But what we see in verse 45 is is so countercultural. The son of man, the ruler of the universe, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And I suspect if you're anything like me, it's very hard to get your head around that and your heart into it. Because Jesus turns all our normal attitudes and expectations upside down. And it all springs from Jesus himself. Jesus sacrificed his life to serve us, to provide us with the mercy we so desperately need. That's why back earlier in the chapter, he said, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. You see, if Jesus gave his life to ransom us, to ransom me, to ransom you, then what he did is not simply inspiring like a sporting star visiting the cancer ward. Now, it's personal. I need Jesus to ransom me. He paid my penalty in my place. 
And that's true no matter how smart or rich or talented or beautiful or powerful or influential or successful or good I am. Or could be. Or aren't. I need Jesus to rescue me and to be rescued is totally humbling. Imagine you're, you get caught out in the surf at Cottesloe Beach drowning and you get rescued. On the way in, you're going to flash your swimming gold medallion and say, look, I'm a great swimmer. No, you've just been rescued. You're in a position of total dependence and humility. But it's a humility that's not humiliating. Jesus doesn't put us down. He lifts us up. But that's why it's so rich, it's so hard for the rich and the clever and the upright and the successful to enter the kingdom. Because we've invested so much in becoming a somebody, in gaining people's respect and recognition. But you can only empty the, enter the kingdom if you let go of all of it. If you come with empty hands like a child. To grab hold of what Jesus has done for me, I've got to let go of whatever was in my hands, my rights, my, my importance, and instead simply ask for mercy. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. No, it just comes as a gift. And so it demolishes all confidence in my sense of importance and superiority and privilege. It just demolishes all of that completely if Jesus gave his life as a ransom for me and for you. We can only enter like a child. And so I just want to ask you that personal question. Have you entered? Have you let go of all the things that make you who you are? that might win you respect and said to Jesus, mercy, that's all I want. Thank you for giving your life as a ransom for me. And for Jesus to give his life for me is the best news ever if you know that's what you need, if you're willing to own that. But it's the worst news ever if you want to hold on to your dignity and preserve your honour. But it's not simply, it isn't that Jesus simply comes with a new philosophy. He turns life upside down by what he does, giving his life for us. And so he inaugurates a new kingdom, a community that's the opposite of all normal communities. Jesus sets the norm in this community where serving is greatness. And he's the greatest of all, because he's the servant of all. Who's the greatest in your church, if you're part of a church, who's the greatest in your church? Is it the lead pastor, the executive pastor, the chair of the governing elders? Now, this is a very different lens, isn't it? The greatest is the one who serves. So it might be that a husband and wife, old, retired, who get the morning tea Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. It might be the people who hang around afterwards and clean the toilets out after a Sunday of heavy use. It might be the gardener. It might be the ones who stay right to the end to put all the books away. Because when you're unseen, when no one knows about it, that's when you know whether you're a servant. It's sort of like the shopping uh, trolleys, isn't it? How do you know whether you're a servant? Well, it's whether you return the shopping trolley back to where it should go. It's unseen. Nobody takes any notice. Now, I'm not saying that the lead pastor isn't the greatest. That he or she might be the greatest. It depends on their attitude, doesn't it? Are they serving or are they lauding it? Are they wanting recognition or are they simply wanting others to thrive? 
willing to clean the toilets and stay back late. Imagine for a moment a community where the leaders served. It'd be a wonderful community to be part of, wouldn't it? Because there'd be no fear of exploitation. That's the problem with power. If it's abused, it always there's always victims of that. But if the leaders serve, it's wonderful. It'd undermine all the sort of hierarchy and jockeying for position and pride. Unfortunately, I think we often subvert Jesus' kingdom because being a Christian actually offers many opportunities to try and get status for ourselves. We can have the label as staff worker or CU president or small group leader. We can serve just to gain recognition and put it on our resume. Now, today is the AGM for CU. We need to take this to heart, don't we? Who should we elect as our leaders? Those who serve. That's the main qualifications, like their saviour. I'm really glad to say that the current committee, I think, have been like that. From what I've seen, they've served us, served us really well. I pray that God gives us another committee like them. Jesus didn't die to gain recognition, but to serve. I heard another story about a guy in business. He was in middle management in an advertising firm. He was involved in a project with a a whole lot of his co-workers that went wrong again. And within that that group of his his team, there was a young grad and it was her work that stuffed things up. The management wanted blood and the guy took it on himself. He said, no, my fault. He got demoted in the company. The young grad came to see him, stunned at what he'd done. She said to him, listen, I, I stuffed up. You could have so easily outed me. Why didn't you? He simply said, well, I'm a Christian. And Jesus, my Lord, took the blame for all my stuff-ups. That's the spirit of Jesus, isn't it? That's to live in a kingdom where the leaders don't come to be served, but to serve.